The purpose of the law was like a schoolmaster to show them their need for Messiah. And they fought against that. They did not submit to God's righteousness when he continually and habitually convicted them in their conscience and by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. They therefore were ignorant. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our ongoing study of the Book of Romans, we've begun a look at Chapter 10, in which the Apostle Paul lays out the accusation against the nation Israel that they had erroneously rejected the Messiah. In our message entitled, Zealous but Rebellious, Pastor Brogy today will show that the first century Israelites were religious zealots but that their zeal was without knowledge, without righteousness, and without Christ. Let's join him as he examines Jesus as a stepping stone into heaven or a stumbling block into hell. God laid down in Zion his son on a cross, crucified there outside the city of Jerusalem, who became a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. God laid down his son in that city, and everyone here this morning must decide how they will relate to that rock. He will either be your foundational rock for salvation, where he becomes a stepping stone into heaven, or he will become a stumbling stone into hell. You will either embrace him and trust him, or you will trip over him. And it's in that context that Paul then makes this statement in chapter 10 and verse 1 into our passage, brethren. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The J.B. Phillips translation was the very first paraphrase ever done in English in the 1950s. Phillips rendered this verse with these words. My brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. Now, please note two truths from this verse of Scripture. Number one, the Apostle Paul prayed for lost people. He believed in the possibility that any lost person could be saved. Second, I want you to see that he had a zealous concern for those who were lost. Now, we've spoken, I did seven sermons on the doctrine of election from chapter 9. And listen, wherever you come down on the doctrine of election, here's the bottom line. If your theology has taken away your zeal, your passion to pray and to win the lost, then your theology is wrong. It's just plain wrong. You've misunderstood Romans chapter 9. Paul said his heart's desire is for their salvation. Now, the word desire could be translated good pleasure, my passion, my satisfaction. Paul's saying I would find nothing more pleasing in my life than to see my Jewish brethren come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing statement, especially when you consider from the Acts of the Apostles what the Jewish people did to Paul. They stoned him, they forsook him, they beat him, they humiliated him, they ridiculed him, they hated him, they hunted him down, they shunned him, they scorned him, you name it. And you would have thought that Paul would say, okay, God, enough is enough is enough. Just let him go. But that's not his heart. His heart, in spite of all the things that they did to him, was for their salvation. There's no resentment in his heart. There's no desire for revenge. Look again in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire my prayer for them. That's why we read the end of chapter 9, because the them, the antecedent, is the Jewish people. 
My heart's desire for the Jewish people is for their salvation. Now listen, if God had predetermined it all in such a way that the elect are automatically saved, then why pray at all? Now listen, I believe in the end all the elect will be saved because the Bible teaches that. But we saw that God, in his foreknowledge, chose people. And we saw all the mental gymnastics that people do in our day with the word foreknowledge. But I gave you four biblical examples where the word prognosco means prior or before knowledge, indisputable. But people want to twist the meaning of the word foreknowledge. Listen, God in eternity past, look down the corridors of time. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no capacity in and of yourself to come to Christ. So God took the initiative. God wooed you. God worked in your heart. And God saw how you would respond. And based on that, God elected people. But listen, if it's all predetermined, why even pray? But knowing that it is God who must work because we're dead in our trespasses. If there's none who seeks God, no, not one. And so God must seek us first. If all we can do is plant as believers in water, and it is God who gives the increase. If you know that the God of this world, small g, the devil, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving and only God can open those eyes. If you understand that no one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him then you will pray. You will pray for those who are lost. Now, the word pray here can be translated beg. In fact, it is translated the exact same word in a different verse in Luke 9 and verse 38. There, there was a man with a desperately ill child, and he said, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. There was just a sense of desperation in that father's heart. And there's a sense of desperation in the heart of the apostle Paul as he prays, knowing that God is sovereign and only God can save. Now, I've been sharing my faith for a long, long time. And I've learned three key things about evangelism, if I've learned anything. Number one, key number one, pray passionately for lost people. Key number two, pray passionately for lost people. Why? Because the effectual, earnest prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And number three, pray passionately for lost people. I was in India last week. I was invited to do a pastor's conference and had about 135 pastors from different parts of the country and training them on how to share their faith and how to win Hindu and Muslim and Sikh people. And I'm telling you, I met all types last week. People worshiping at idols. 1.3 billion people stuffed into a country about a third larger than the state of Texas. They are everywhere. And when you see some of the truths and some of the beliefs that some of these people have embraced, you know your only hope is to pray. Pray, 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 pray. Then go and tell and expect God to work. But listen, knowing that God is the one who must first work, knowing that God alone can give the increase, it really is freeing when you think about it. Because you realize you don't have to know all the answers before you can approach someone. You don't have to worry, well, maybe I just said something a little bit wrong and I messed it up a little bit such that you're responsible for their damnation. No, 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 no. God is sovereign. He works. And notice, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God. His prayer is to God because God is the only answer and only God can answer. 
And again, that being true, when you introduce someone to Christ, you realize God gets all the glory. I went there, among other things, to reach some of the people from India for Christ, and they asked me to do a service last Sunday afternoon, and a number of Africans who are refugees from all these countries that are war-torn were coming together, and they were searching for the Lord, and this pastor said, there's, there's 25 Africans, most of them don't know Christ. He said, they're searching, they're looking, they've come from animistic backgrounds and other kinds of false religions, and I shared the simple plan of salvation, and 14 of those men and women gave their lives to Christ. I mean, that, that was the hand of God. That's something God did. Many, many, many a day I leave this campus, and when I get in my car, I thank the Lord that He gave me the privilege to introduce someone to the Savior. Listen, it is his work, and when you understand that conversion is a work of God and not a work of man, you give God all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. That's man's greatest need. You say, well, didn't the Jews need escape from the oppression of Rome? Of course they did. Didn't they need some justices made right, some injustices turned into justices? Absolutely. But Jesus said, remember, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? In other words, what good is it if you have world peace and in the end you die and drop off into hell? What good is education? What good is prosperity? What good is justice upon the earth if you never meet Jesus Christ in salvation? And I believe we've lost our focus in mainline evangelicalism today. I hear more evangelicals interested in the green movement and uh, global warming and other such issues than I do in their sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are like people shining the decks of the Titanic as it sinks. Listen, I believe in global warming. The Bible teaches God's going to burn the whole planet with fire someday. There's going to be a total meltdown. Our chief objective, though, we should care for the creation, and we're stewards of it. Our chief objective is to win men and women and boys and girls to Jesus Christ. And I fear that that's what we have lost in evangelical churches today. I might be embarrassed. I hope I wouldn't be, but I fear I might be embarrassed if I asked everyone here and everyone on the Bluffton campus who even tried this week to reach out to some lost person to stand, I fear I would be disappointed. And we wonder why America is going to pot. The only way to change a nation is to change the individuals within that nation, and there's no change possible apart from a birth from above. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. This verse reminds me of the Mormons. By the way, I saw them in India. I said, stop the car. And they were reaching all these Indians. They had a whole group of them. And I spoke through my translator and I said, understand these people are not Christians. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. They deny the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. They deny the virgin birth and that they say God the Father took on a human body and had a relationship with Mary. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They are not Christians. End of message. Handed out my tract in Hindi, got in the car and we drove on. 
But when I see these Mormons door to door and these Jehovah's Witnesses killing themselves, trying to win people with the devil's message using the master's method, they are people with a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. It reminds me when I was in Bethlehem and there in the alleged birthplace of the Lord Jesus, and you had all these Orthodox people lighting candles, burning incense all day long, just saying the rosary. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. It reminds me of Muslims who are willing to blow themselves up for Allah. It reminds me of some Hindus I saw last week who took milk when their children were hungry and they poured it at the base of a tree or they poured it into the river to feed the God of the river or to feed the God of the tree. They're zealous, all right, but their zeal is misdirected. And that's true with many a person. People tell me all the time, well, wait a minute, but they're so sincere. You mean to tell me that God is going to send them to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to uh, help us to understand that kind of fallacious thinking. Listen, it's not sincerity that saves, it's Jesus who saves. And the proper word for zeal without knowledge, for commitment without reflection, for enthusiasm without understanding is fanaticism. The Greek word here for zeal is zealos. It comes directly into English as zeal. And there was a fanatical group of Jews in the first century who thought the only way to solve the problem of Rome was to slit their throats. They are called in the New Testament zealots. And these are people who took God's law and they turned it into something that God never intended it to be. And they had regulation after regulation and tradition after tradition. And they gave people a burden that was really impossible to follow. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. All right, that's the first principle. These were people who had a zeal without knowledge. Second, the Hebrew people also had zeal without righteousness. Zeal without righteousness. He explains it here in verse 3. Notice, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Now, this verse tells us that though, as we've learned from the ninth chapter, that God had elected Israel as a nation, he rejected them as a nation because they sought to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness. They refused to acknowledge their sin. They refused to admit their need for salvation. They refused to believe in a God who would judge sin, who could condemn sinners. And so they had no one left to believe in but themselves. And in describing here their seeking, the word seeking is in a particular tense in the New Testament that where in Greek you not only have past, present, and future time, you also have a certain kind of time. And this kind of time is they were continually ongoing seeking for not knowing about God's righteousness. They were, they were continually seeking to establish their own. If you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus illustrated this truth. As he cataloged their sin, he reminded them that they had a righteousness that did not please God. And so he reminded them that they prayed in public so men could see them pray. They didn't bathe or wash their hair or anoint themselves with oil when they fasted so they would appear to be holy men. And when they gave, they gave in an ostentatious kind of way so that men would see, quote unquote, their godliness. And of such people, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. My righteousness, your righteousness falls short of his righteousness, which is absolute perfection. And so unbelieving Israel, 
was seeking, notice, to establish their own righteousness. Now, the word establish is a word that's used outside of the Bible to, to build a monument. And that's really what they were doing. They were building a monument to themselves by the things that they did. Look at the whole verse. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Please notice, when a person seeks his own righteousness, when he seeks his way of salvation instead of God's way, they're not submitting to the righteousness of God. They are in rebellion. Listen, a man who worships at an idol, at a piece of stone, at a tree, at some pagan temple, that's not some kind of piety that just needs to be redirected. We learned in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen by what He has created. And so men are without excuse. But even though they knew of God's existence, men don't start polytheistic. The Bible teaches they start monotheistic, that there's one God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship the creation rather than the creator. That's rebellion. They are not subjecting themselves to the revelation God has given. And when you see a man who's trying to work his way to heaven, that's not some kind of piety that we should honor. God says that's a form of rebellion. How so? Because you're going against the dictates of your own conscience that you are guilty and you're trying to somehow erase that guilt by the things that you do. And so they refuse to surrender to the righteousness of God. They have a knowledge, but their knowledge is an incomplete knowledge. They have a zeal, but a zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. And they do not know about God's righteousness for the simple reason they are rebellious. Please understand here, these were not people who didn't know anything of the Old Testament scriptures, but these were people who in, were ignorant of the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures because of their self-righteous pride. And Jesus brought some of the strongest words of condemnation against such people. Of the experts in the law, he said this in Luke eleven fifty-two: 52, woe to you, for you have taken away the key of knowledge of the religious liberals of his day, he said, you are mistaken not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And so with all of their effort, with all of their scholarship, with all of their learning, they were still ignorant because they were rebellious. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now it's interesting here because he uses two words for knowledge, two different words in verse two and verse three. See if you can follow this. I know you can. The first word for knowledge is not the typical Greek word for knowledge, for gnosis, for, that speaks of, of head knowledge. But the first word for knowledge here in verse 2 is the Greek word epigenosis. Uh, sometimes it is translated in our Bibles, true knowledge. It's more than head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. And so in essence, you could paraphrase it, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with epigenosis, with true knowledge. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 3, 7 of lost people who are always learning but never coming to the true knowledge of the truth. So they learn, but they don't really learn. They hear, but they don't really hear. They see, but they don't really see, as the Lord pointed out on a number of occasions. The second word for, that's translated not knowing is the Greek word for ignorance. 
And so when you don't have true knowledge, and they did not, because the dictates of their conscience told them that they were wrong, that they were sinful, the purpose of the law was like a schoolmaster to show them their need for Messiah, and they fought against that. They did not submit to God's righteousness when he continually and habitually convicted them in their conscience, and by the work of God the Holy Spirit, they therefore were ignorant. And that's the way it is today. People who are religious, but who are ignorant because they are trying to establish their own righteousness, and so they are not submitting to the righteousness of God. So they have zeal without righteousness. Zeal without knowledge, and because they had zeal without knowledge, that led to zeal without righteousness, and therefore that leads us into the third point Paul makes. The people had zeal without Christ. He tells me why in verse 4, their rebellious righteousness is incomplete and not pleasing to the Lord. Notice verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, by now, as we've been studying through Romans, you've been looking for little words, connective words. And the word 4 connects verse 4 to verse 3. So it tells us, in essence, that the Jews did not connect the dots between Christ's righteousness and the Lord Jesus. Now, what precisely does it mean when it says here, Christ is the end of the law? Well, clearly it cannot mean that God now has terminated the Old Testament law and it has no significance today. It cannot mean that because many of the uh, laws of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament and have full application for us today. We studied that truth in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, where Paul says, because we couldn't achieve a righteousness in ourselves, God sent Christ who died for us that we could be saved. And then he says in Romans 8, 4, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so to say that God's done with the law is sheer nonsense. Now, some of my reformed friends, not all of them, but some of my reform friends mean, they say, well, the end of the law mean, refers to Israel, who are the custodians of the law, and because they weren't faithful custodians, that God has done with the nation of Israel. But we saw that misinterprets all the Old Testament quotations in the ninth chapter. We saw that misinterpreted all the unconditional promises that God made to Abraham. We saw it contradict plain statements when God describes that he loves Israel with an eternal love, an everlasting love. He said that his commitment to them is fixed like the sun, moon, and the stars. And as long as the sun, moon, and the stars are in a fixed order, so I will be committed to Israel, Jeremiah 31. So we know it can't mean that, not to mention when we come to the 11th chapter, Paul will underscore that God's not done with the Jewish people. Now, just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're saved, and we studied that. And if you don't know what that means, go back and listen. But what does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? I think he's simply reminding us that the law, here a, uh, uh, two words for the Old Testament, so to speak, that the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the best interpreter of the law is Christ himself. So listen to what he said about the Old Testament law. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, the word fulfill play, uh, normally means to bring it to its intended meaning. So Paul's point is that Christ is the goal. Christ is the culmination of the law. All of the Old Testament types, all of the Old Testament ceremonies 
pointed to the Lord Jesus. Do you think it's by accident? Then when you look at the six feasts of Israel, six feasts that they celebrated every single year, that Christ died on Passover, that he was buried in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a picture of his sinlessness, that he was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, and that 50 days later on the Feast of Pentecost, God sent the Spirit. Now, all of those Old Testament types, all of the illustrations ultimately pointed to Christ. The prophecies in the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, pointed to Christ. The writings, the Psalms, they all pointed to the Lord Jesus. And so he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I'm bringing them to their intended meaning. Paul made a very similar statement to the Corinthians when he said, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Does that mean that we have to, on our own, become wise or holy or redeem ourselves in order to be saved? Of course not. Now, the Israelite in Paul's day said, of course it's true. But here he says, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and so forth. And here he says in Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, please note, just because he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law and fulfilled all of the types and all of the illustrations doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. Look at the last verse, the last word in verse 4. Circle it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not to the one who tries, not to the one who behaves, but to the one who believes. In the 1850s, there was a very famous missionary by the name of John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the Hebrides, New Hebrides Islands. I remember reading stories with my wife to our children when they were young with Child Evangelism Fellowship as they uh, recounted this man's life and his powerful ministry that he had with a native people. And uh, he, of course, went there to learn their language. And once he learned his language, his goal was to put the scriptures in their tongue. And as he came to the word faith or believe in the New Testament, he just couldn't seem to find a word in their language. And he kept asking the people, he said, what, what's your word for trust? What, what's your word for, for heart faith? He, he wanted to get past just intellectual knowledge to a heart trust, to a heart belief. And uh, they didn't really understand what he was saying. And he'd listen to their conversations. He was looking for the right words. And he just couldn't seem to find it. And one day he was on his knees begging God, God, I, I need to put your word in a, a format that they can understand it. And while he was on his knees, one of the natives came running in with a package. And he came into his hut and he sat down in that big soft chair and he went, and Patton said, what did you just do to that chair? He said, I didn't do anything to the chair. What did you just do to that chair? When you sat in it and you just put your full support and rest in, in, in it. And he gave him the word. And that's the word that he used to translate believe. And it's still used, his translation of the Bible in that language to this day. That's what faith is. When he says that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe, it's the person who says, I've quit trying and I have now trusted. I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. I put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To listen again to today's message entitled, Zealous but Rebellious, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for program ROM50. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at Israel's religious zeal. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.